be in the book of Revelation here tonight. So if you've got a Bible, I'm sure you do. Go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Revelation. Thank you, James. Servant-hearted James. Just need a haircut. <laughs> Is that recording? I'll be recording this. I hope that goes on the, uh, on the YouTube page. Yeah, so I just reminded now by seeing the announcement of... September 14th, 2008, my wife and I started a brand new church, and no one turned up for a really long time. Um, in fact, this is quite a, quite a large audience. In the first six months, when we started Hope Church in 2008, we averaged, for the first six months, max, like capacity, our biggest service was six people, including my wife and I. So there were some four randos that kept turning up, which was mildly encouraging and mildly amusing. And then, of course, over the years, God began to grant us that fruit that he promises when we faithfully proclaim the gospel. And so we, I served there until 2017 and then moved over to the U.S., first to East Texas to work in church revitalization. And more recently in upstate New York to be the lead pastor of a church called Journey Christian Church. Now, enough about me. It doesn't matter. Most of you know me. Those that don't, it's not important anyway. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 4. It's not a long chapter. We're going to go through and read the entire bit, then we're going to work our way through it systematically, verse by verse, and see what this would reveal to us about God's goodness, His grace, and His glory. Picking up at verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4, After this, John said, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashings of flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were Created. May God bless this, the reading of his own precious and infallible word to us today. This is one of the great examples in the book of Revelation 
where the English language, well, the Koine Greek language, the original, but even in our English, in a faithful interpretation, is stretched to its extremity, and yet still you get through reading this chapter, and you don't quite feel like much of it made a lot of sense at all. Like, what are these creatures that seem to be all eyes, inward, outward, frontward, backward, and at the same time, one of them looks like a man, one like an ox, one looks like an eagle in flight. The more you stretch the power of your imagination to try and conjure up an image, you're no closer to, in fact, what John is seeing. And just for a moment, before we dive into the content of this chapter this afternoon, just spare a thought for John. Just, just, just offer some of your sympathy to John, who saw these things with his own very human eyes, and then he goes and ransacks the human language, every vocabulary he can find, and no doubt when he looked down at what he wrote, inspired by the Spirit, of course, and he remembered what he saw and looked at what he wrote, he must have felt pretty defeated. English language or Greek language or any language for that matter of, of, of humanly and earthly origin is just never going to quite capture for us what this beatific vision, what this eternal, glorious, all-surpassing, transcendental vision that John saw. Now what I find curious about this chapter, especially in light of the last maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 years, I've been a Christian now for about... 23 years, I think that where, that's where we're at in the count, is the marketability and the profiting there has seemed to have, have, have occurred in the burgeoning industry, some of you may have noticed, some of you gracefully may not have noticed, the burgeoning industry of selling resources from people who are claiming to have had a BTV vision. People who, have, who in the middle of the night, Jesus swept into their room and took them up to heaven and showed them all manner of weird and wonderful things. Or, or the near-death experience, you know, section of the genre where they, they were you know, dead on the operating table. They had this spectacular vision of Jesus and glory and all kinds of weird and wonderful things. These, these kinds of items, particularly as a, as a genre of literature, is booming now. It is a multi-million dollar industry. Now... It doesn't help the fact that there have, been, there have been a number of these particular resources. Let's just add the fine print right now. I am not recommending them. I'm going to get there in a moment, but I realize at this point, someone's like, I'd like to read some of these. I'm not recommending them at all. But what's happened is we've seen some of these resources that did so well, sold millions of copies worldwide, translated into, into hundreds of different languages, have turned out to be a hoax. These people were hucksters. They invented stories. They, they conjured up a narrative. They were, they, were, they were good at their word smithery. They were able to, to, to paint a picture. And all the while, what really becomes a stark contrast is they never read like this, what we've just read. Wherever they try to read like this, they borrow from the Bible, but they never quite come close to, to demonstrating exactly what it must mean for someone like John, who's an inspired apostle, he has the power, the authority, the office and calling to write Holy Scripture under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. And yet what happens in our modern day is, is these authors and these people having these experiences, let me go on the record as saying, I don't know if they're all false. I suspect they are. But of course, we always have to kind of leave that, I guess, that scholastic humility that maybe one of these somewhere is valid, but they all seem to me to feel like they're really a profiteering endeavor. And one of the greatest reasons or ways that I feel confident in saying that is the insistence upon the authors who are producing these materials to be understood. 
to, to make sure that they paint a picture as you read the page after page, chapter after chapter. You come away thinking like, oh, I can really see it. And, and people, Christians get excited by it. And they, they kind of get tingly and they start having a euphoric experience after reading these books. That's not quite what you get when you read this chapter. When you read this chapter and subsequent chapters of the book of Revelation, which as John tells us, is literally a door opening so John can be swept up in the Spirit. He can enter into the very throne room of God in heaven. Think Isaiah chapter 6 and passages in Ezekiel of, of comparison to this. You always get the sense that as hard as John is trying to communicate to you what he's seeing with his own very eyes, he just can't make human language conform to the glory, the beauty, the magnitude of all of the vision that he sees. And yet, he does give us something very useful to work with. There is a huge appetite, as I said, in our modern day for the kind of insight into what heaven's like. Why do you think thousands and millions of Christians, well-meaning, sincere, maybe lacking in a healthy dose of discernment, but, but nonetheless sincere Christians are flocking to Amazon and the local Christian bookstore to pick up their copy of these resources is because there's an appetite to know what does heaven look like? What is going on in heaven? What, what can we expect to hear and, and see and, and touch and, and smell and taste? What is, what is heaven going to actually be like? As a Christian, there is, there is something that the Spirit of God implants in every one of us that yearns for the glory of the perfect world to come. And sometimes that yearning manifests itself in seeking data and detail in the wrong places. And curiously, as we see the appetite for these kinds of resources as burgeoning, as I said, it's not unsurprising to see the Bible already satisfies this desire. But the challenge is when we go to the inspired text, when we go to the place where we know with, without any question of a doubt its authenticity, its authority, its veracity, its legitimacy, we read chapters like this and they challenge us. It's not quite as clear as we would like. The voice says to John that a heaven's, the heaven's door opens and John enters through it to get this vision, this view, this, this experience. Now, maybe, maybe some of these experiences that others are purporting to have and writing books or going on, you know, going on talk back Christian television or, or spreading their testimony and selling their, who knows, subscriptions. Whatever it is, there, there always seems to be a, a short distance from the, the experience to the, uh, to the checkout. You know, empty your cart, pay the bill, get the book shipped to you, get the CD, get the DVD. But here in John, what's very interesting to me is John paints the picture very vividly, but language just seems to be inept. There's a lack of the ability of human language to be as clear as we want. The first thing he sees, we should learn by this, is the most conspicuous thing that's observable in the very throne room of God, no shock to any of us, is the throne. The throne. Now, there are other thrones. We're going to discover that in a moment. We just read it. But it's the central throne. It's the, it's the epicenter of the experience, the very throne of God, where all of these other fanciful things orbit around it. Fanciful things like sounds, like peals of thunder and rumbling and, and lightning or, or weird sights. Like there's, there's this weird 
this weird collection or collage of, of colourful stones and a, and a rainbow that seems to be more green than any other colour and, and the ground seems to be this, this endless glassy ocean. And John sees all this, but the, the focal point, the eye races to see first and foremost this throne in the midst. Now what do we read about the throne? We read that the throne stands and its occupant sits. Now maybe those those descriptions of posture were not immediately obvious to you. This is indeed powerful ancient Near Eastern imagery showing the highest authority and sovereignty. In the, in the ancient world, positions of dignity, positions of power, positions of authority were always positions where people sat. Where, where those that were in the position of honor and dignity were afforded the privilege of sitting. Probably those among us that are church historians, you know this already. But even in the first few centuries of the Christian church, if you were the, the preacher, the expositor of the word, you were the one that got to sit and everyone else stood for as long as your sermon went. Of course, we can see that's been reversed today, except, of course, when uh, a, a seat is necessary. <laughs> the inhabitant of this throne is the Ancient of Days. It is the Lord God himself. But he's entirely unseen. What you won't find in the book of Revelation, what you won't find in this chapter, what you will not find anywhere in the Bible, is a personal description of what the Father looks like. That's not unintentional. That's essential to our theology. That the Father, as we appreciate God, has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, tri-personal being that is God. The Father is incorporeal, meaning he doesn't have a, a form or a body that we should, we should reflect upon him as, as being human-like. He's, he's unable to be seen. So the inhabitant on the throne is the Ancient of Days, the Lord of all, but he's not seen. And John doesn't dare to try and at least describe an outline because that would be verging, verging on blasphemy. We read this in verse 3 and 5. This is what John offers. Not a profile, but in 3 and 5, he tells you what he sees in the midst of the throne. And he who sat, verse 3, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. That's what John offers. Now again, as we stretch the power of our imagination, as you, as you picture this is you, not John, this is you. And your eyes are, are falling upon this scene of this huge throne standing in the midst of heaven's courtroom. And you don't see the outline of a person on the throne. It's obvious there's a person on the throne. The throne is there to be inhabited by a very personal God who is the Father. But the description you get is this, is this weird concoction of colors and precious stones. And, and somehow light keeps refracting and, and lightning bolts. And there's thunder and, and there's murmurings and, and, and there's rumblings and... And that's all you get. At this point, we might be dissatisfied. We might be frustrated at John. Couldn't you have given us more? Couldn't you have made clearer what you're actually seeing? And I find that I find that the greatest challenge I often have with Christians, it's a very common thing for Christians to believe that people like John or characters in the Bible like Isaiah or, or Moses or Abraham, it's very common for Christians to believe that people have seen the Father. Despite the fact that Jesus goes out of his way to say the opposite, people are under the conviction 
that they are or that people are in the Bible seeing the Father. In fact, even just me saying that now, some of you are like, I'm not hearing him right. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not saying what it sounds like he's saying. Let me state it a different way, in a positive way. Every time someone in the Bible sees and experiences God in an earthly environment, like Moses on Mount Sinai, for example, every time they see the person that is God, they are seeing the second person of the Trinity. Every time. So Moses saw God, yes. Moses saw God. Moses dwelt with God, yes. Even as a friend does with a friend, even face to face. Moses hiding in the cleft of the rock on Sinai and God passes before him and, and, and shows Moses his, his glory. It's never the Father. It's a mistake to presume it's the Father. And I don't know why it's so prevalent in modern evangelical Christianity that people just have this idea that the Father is at different times turning up and then he's tapping in Jesus or the second person to come on the scene and, and turn up and that sometimes it's the, it's the Spirit. What we know from Scripture very, very clearly is no one has ever seen the Father's person. Now, this person on the throne is the Father. Don't be misunderstood. It cannot be the Son because in chapter 5 we're introduced to the Son who is standing off from the throne. And then as a lamb in the midst of the throne, he's revealed. In chapter 5, we're not going to go there tonight where we really don't have the time for it. But in chapter 5, there's this moment of grief in heaven where no one is found worthy to, to unfurl this scroll. And that's when the Lamb is revealed as distinct from the inhabitant of his throne. He's introduced as the Lamb that was slain. Now, no one has ever seen the Father. Just, just in case that is so confronting and conflicting to you, let me give you this in the words of Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, we, have, we cannot approach John 1.18 without a robust Trinitarian appreciation that God is more than one person. Is it a, is, should we evacuate or someone's left some toast in the toaster? Is that, I'm sure we'll be fine. Well, all James had to do was walk back there. The anointing on that guy. Now, just in case, as I said, you're thinking about John 1.18... And you need this robust Trinitarian theology because Jesus says, no one has ever seen God. Now at that point you're like, oh Jesus, I'm not sure you've read the Old Testament. Seemed like people were seeing God. But then Jesus goes on and he says, no one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. The only God, monogamous theos is the Greek, who's at the Father's side. He's, he's at the side of the God who is the Father, is the God who is the Son. He has made the Father known. So also in John 6, 46, Jesus said this, Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. So Jesus, or if you like, prior to the New Testament, the second person of the Trinity, is the manifestation of the Father, the full revelation of the Father, the revealer also of the Father. And he is the one that people are interacting with in scripture. So also we might turn and reference in the epistles. Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 16, speaking of God, he says, "Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever." Just in case for you you would not 100% sure there is no squirming around or away from the conclusion that Paul writes to Timothy. There is a God that is visible 
that is personal, that is manifest as a man and God. He is Jesus. And he always reveals the Father. So curiously, anytime in the Old Testament that, that, that God is making his person and his presence known in a very explicit, a very tangible way, it's the second person of the Trinity each and every time. And so as consistently that as we should be, it's no surprise that it's the second person of the Trinity that is sent to become incarnate in our form, in our mold, in our humanity, to live and die as the Savior of sinners. There's the throne. The Father's on the throne. So what do you get? A description of a, of, of a head and eyes and nose and mouth. You get none of that. You get weird ideas of flashing stones and, and glimmering colors and this sea of, 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 of glass. And, and the throne is just this enigmatic imagery on this throne, which is like, it's like picture lightning, rumbling, thunder, rainbow, stones of colors all together. That's what John saw. And that's the best he can do because the father doesn't reveal himself as the person who is seen. Now surrounding the throne, are 24 lesser thrones. These sit, on these sit, in all probability, angels who are called elders. Also, as we see in Isaiah 24, 23, angels are referred to as elders. It's a bizarre reference. It's caused a lot of debate in the academic literature. Like maybe, maybe these elders are like humans who served the church really well and died in some kind of martyrdom experience. And so they get elevated to a throne, but the greatest probability is that these are angels. In fact, in this scene, there are two types of angels that are going to be revealed. Now, 12 of the 24 are representative of the patriarchs of Israel. And 12 of the 24, most commentators believe, represent the apostles as the foundation of the church of God. These 24 elders are appointed to be representatives of the unified revelation of God, Old Testament, New Testament, one message, God's love to humanity and salvation being secured in the person of his son. This whole scene is such a bizarre revelation. It's a curiosity. It's enigmatic and mysterious. And there's so many weird and wonderful things occurring. But what's interesting to me, at least, or what's conspicuous, is actually what's missing. There's a complete lack, if you'll notice this, Chapter 4, now I know you don't need to be a mathematician to know this, but don't let me test you too strong here today. Chapter 4 indeed comes after chapter 3. I'll give you a moment to process that. That's pretty funny. Where is everyone? <laughs> I've used that joke before. You have, yeah, of course. I got it from you, of course. And I thought, yeah, that's so good. I wanted to think of that. So that means that chapter 2 and 3, as we lead up into the life of the church... And Tom's done a very great job of faithfully expositing those letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. And each and every church had their own struggle, whether it was pressure from without, a, a government, an antagonistic uh, Jewish population, or it's, or it's corruption from within, right? It's inner cancer that's destroying the church through heresy or, or immorality. or You guys have gone through them. You remember them all. And this scene in heaven is, is almost occurring concurrently with all of that mess going on in these churches. Now remember, in the first century, you don't have a lot of churches. You might be sitting here thinking, well, so what, seven churches struggling? Like, that's a big deal. That's pretty much just the Gold Coast, right? But in this day and age, there was probably only about 15, 20 churches maximum in the entire world. If seven of them are struggling, then everyone feels it. Everybody knows it. Everyone experiences it. 
This, this revelation written by John as Jesus commissions him to write these letters. What's conspicuous is what you see going on in heaven. Because as you work your way through Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you look at all the mark and the grime and the challenge and the, the trauma that the churches are going through, you might think for a moment that heaven has called off their worship service, that, that all of the, the concatenation of the goings-on of the throne room of heaven to just look down and begin to reflect, maybe even have a bit of anxiety. Is the church going to survive? Are things going to go well? Is it going to succeed? There's a complete lack of panic, a complete lack of concern or anxiety for the things that are going on in earth, and not just earth globally, but in the very few churches that actually exist. If these seven churches in Asia Minor fail in their commission to repent, to be strengthened, there's a couple there that weren't even told to repent because they were actually doing quite well despite the outward pressure bearing down upon them. If those seven churches had their lampstands removed, odds are there isn't a church in the world today. That would be such a, and now I know God, God is sovereign. The churches did succeed sufficiently to be church planting churches. The mission advanced. I, I, I get all that. I just think hypothetically, it really was a dire situation for the church at large that these seven churches do well. And after a long study, which you guys have done to ascertain the health of these churches, we see in heaven there's no anxiety at all. These seven churches that we've at least you've studied together, are in all kinds of different battles. Some of these churches are on the brink of foreclosure. Some of these churches are almost irrecognizable as churches. Yet heaven continues to do what? To worship. That's what heaven does. That's, that's, that's the revelation we even get in the Psalms. That let the earth do what it wants. Let the, let the chaos and the disorder of the world do as it pleases. What does the Psalms tell us? That he who sits in heaven, he laughs. Kingdom rises up against kingdom. God hasn't lost control. God's not set in a panic. God's not worried or concerned. God's not trying to look into the future and work out what's plan B, C, D. What am I going to do about any of this? God is in complete control, as he always is. Heaven continues to worship. And the assurance of these characters that we've been introduced to, their confidence and the stability that they seem to have is not in the events going on in the world, but it's in God. It's in the nature of God and the true worship of God. Look at the call and response of these two different species of angels. I believe that the elders and the creatures are two different species of angels. We, we just don't really have enough biblical data to understand all the, the different levels and, and spheres of responsibility and authority of angels, the cherubim and, and seraphim and, and different kinds of heavenly messengers. These creatures and elders appear to be different species. The creatures first. These possibly are seraphim. Some argue they're the cherubim of Ezekiel. I think this reads a little more closely to Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah himself gets a very similar experience to what John gets, and he gets ushered into the throne room, in the year that King Isaiah dies, he says, I saw the Lord, high and lifted up. And Isaiah begins to, begins to discuss these, these creatures, these seraphim that he sees. But the main difference is where, where John sees these creatures as having very bizarre countenances, like ox or eagle or, or lion, one like a human, 
Isaiah doesn't offer those descriptions because in Isaiah, those that remember the passage, of the six wings that these angels flew with, two of them covered their face. Then that might be why there seems to be discontinuity with Isaiah's description and John's. But that's not really the point. That's rather immaterial. The song is now enlarged from Isaiah's version. In Isaiah's version, the song of the seraphim is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is the Lord. The train of his robe fills the temple. In Revelation 4 verse 8, the song is enlarged somewhat. We read, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The focus of this short one verse hymn that we are led to believe these angelic creatures have been singing incessantly. That without stopping for, for a moment of rest, round the clock, night and day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, for millennia after millennium, singing this song. And at the point of John seeing this, he hears these words articulating the uniqueness of God. That's what it means for God to be holy. It means God is separate. God is other. God is distinct from us. Often, often in our modern appreciation of the word holy, we, we, almost, we almost isolate our thoughts to morally superior. That, that's what we think. Someone's holy, well, they're holier than me, right? We've all met that Christian. That person seems to at least present themselves, maybe superficially, as morally superior, right? Ethically better. But the word holy, in, in biblical language, it of course does mean that. that that's, not, that's not not part of it. But it means so much more than that. It means God in, in, in the quality of his being is distinct from every other quality of being. Superior and sovereign. And further to that, these, these seraphim not just sing out his holiness, but his almightiness and the supremacy and eternality of his omnipotence. You see that in the phrase? The Lord God Almighty who was and is is to come. Again, I find this one of the most compelling aspects, particularly as I interact with Christians now for many years in a, in a pastoral way. I meet a lot of Christians who isolate their idea of God's, God's omnipresence. It's kind of a big fancy word for God's everywhereness, where God suffuses his presence everywhere, equally, exhaustively. Like God's presence is like is not like a, a, a knife glob of butter that you spread across toast and as you do it's getting limited and limited and less and less each time God's presence is exhaustively suffused throughout all reality and existence now that's just the simple doctrine of God's omnipresence what we call his everywhereness what often isn't properly appreciated by Christians is God's omnipresence isn't just about him being everywhere in space but also everywhere in time Everywhere in time. As a being, God is so perfect and supreme, he doesn't lose time. He doesn't move through time like, like us. We, we are creatures that are, that are contained in a, in a prison of time-space continuum. God isn't that. Now, yes, God imminently enters into time-space, but his presence perfectly suffuses all time and space. Like all reality is like one locale before God. And all time is like one very vibrant, real moment before God. He's not passing through time. 
He's not, he's not, God's not exercising his memory to think that what he did yesterday, he is as present yesterday as he is now, as he will always be. This is the song, the hymn of the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. He was and is and is to come. His presence is past, now, future, perfectly, exhaustively. So the focus of these seraphim is to call out these wonderful perfections of God. And now notice, if you will, the reply. Before we look at this reply, I will remind you, this is not a once and done incident. This is not these creatures are, are, are doing this once, and then the, the reply, and then they kind of sit back and take a break and just kind of kick their heels up and, and say, when, when are we doing that again, guys? That was kind of fun. You're meant to read this scene like this is, a, this is a pantomime that is not at any point pausing or ending. The elders fall from their thrones, we read. They were told, we were told they were wearing crowns. They take off their crowns. They hurl them at the feet of the one who sits on the throne, and they reply. This is a call and response type, type song of worship. Their reply is, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now isolate your attention, the focus of this, this reply verse of the hymn. And then as you do that, remember that at the moment that the elders do this, what's their next action? It's not hard to work it out. They get up. I don't know, do they go grab the crown? Or does one just miraculously appear on their head? I don't know. But when I know they get up, they get back on their throne, and they wait for the creatures to finish their verse again so that they can fly off the throne, throw their crown again, and reply in with their verse. It is a staggering scene to behold. This is the worship that God is worthy. In fact, that's the opening line of the reply of these angelic elders. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the antidote. As, as you move through the book of Revelation, and, and, and you spend time, and we should spend time in chapters 2 and 3, and the anxiety and, and the tension and the frustration at churches that are, that are wayward, we, we all know there's no perfect church. Except this church, in the throne room of God. Except this worship service in the throne room of God. This is where perfection is realized in the, the beatific vision. And so for us, living in the very here and now, this is the antidote for our anxiety. It's not more self-focus or self-analysis. It's not more understanding of our circumstances. It's our ability to fix our eyes on the glorious one who inhabits heaven's highest throne. God's attributes, God's perfection. These are the healing and the confidence boosting that we all need. I've stated this so many times, it becomes boringly predictable. But the greatest spiritual warfare, I'm going to say it again, not, not all of you have heard me preach before. The greatest spiritual warfare you will ever engage in is not the devil waking you up in the middle of the night, tearing your arms off and beating you to death with the wet end. That's not it, right? The greatest spiritual warfare you'll ever engage in is the devil's attempt to distract you. To distract you. It's not your death that he ultimately pursues you for. It's just your distraction. Your distraction could be anything in life. The, the pesky circumstances, the daily annoyances, 
or the sins that you just don't seem to feel like you can get on top of, or maybe being in a church that you know is imperfect and you've been offended, you've been hurt, you've been let down, are you going to be distracted by it? Or are you going to fix your eyes on Jesus? When everything around you is a mess of disorder and a mess of chaos, and no solution looks even remotely possible, can you remember him who sits on the throne? His supreme, his glory, his honor, his holiness. And can you trust him to make a way when no obvious way is apparent? What would we read in the Psalm 23? I love how, I love how this comes to the, the psalmist in the midst of the battle. He says, you spread a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's, that's, that's the greatest move of all. That's the greatest move of all. While the battle is raging all around you, maybe, maybe like you're in one of these churches, like, like these struggling churches, like Laodicea, right? They're not hot, they're not cold, they don't even have the courage of their conviction to, to, to be wayward. Like they're pretending to be on track with Jesus, but they're not. And they're not on fire, they're not zealous, they're not courageous. And so God says, I, I, I feel like you're making me sick to my stomach. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Maybe you feel like kind of that's, that's your spiritual milieu right now. That's, you're in that prison. You're in that space. And it's hard to make sense of it. But God wants to come. God desires to come. The scripture says that God delights to come to spread the table before us. In the presence of our enemies. In the presence of our chaos. In the presence of our mess. I love the chapter 2 and chapter 3 revelation are followed by chapter 4. This is what the throne room of heaven has been doing this entire time. And we can be sure, even though the book of Revelation has been, has been finalized and finished 2,000 years ago, this is what heaven is still doing. The, the only material difference is that the singing chorus around the throne has been enlarging and multiplying as saints have lived the victorious life, have, have died and gone to their reward. And we all get a chance one day to experience that firsthand if we have trusted in Christ for our salvation. Would you bow your head and close your eyes as we look to the Lord with a word of prayer and dedication here together this evening. Father God, we thank you for this chance. We are tonight to gather as your people here on this Lord's Day. We thank you for this church, this brand new church. All of its fights and battles and struggles are ahead of it. And it's exciting, Lord God, and it's a little terrifying as well, and we understand that. We want you to help us to fix our eyes on you. Lord God, we want you to help us to look unto Jesus, because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Give us strength to abide in grace. Lord God, every time we feel like that the disorder and the, the disarray that is just that's just swallowing us up like waves in the ocean, that we would return to this vision in Revelation chapter 4. So look at these creatures and these elders singing one to another to you, Lord God, on the throne, honor and worship and glorifying you. For you are good and your love endures forever. Lord, I pray that we would have a robust view of your sovereignty, your glory, your majesty. And above all these things, your grace and mercy to us, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Bless this word to us tonight, Lord God. We pray that it would bear much fruit in our lives, all and entirely to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.